Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving from cool new gear to places to dive and scuba in the news. Scuba Obsessed, episode 413, is recorded live July 18th, 2019. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Jilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan, where we are enjoying summer. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac? I'm doing very well today and glad to be here. Yeah, this is this is some beautiful weather. Some people may complain it's too hot, but uh, I, I think uh, just, just remember what it looked like uh, the middle of January, and I think <laughs> I, I can appreciate this weather a lot more. And if, a few thunder boomers came through earlier today too. Did, were you able to stay away from those? Uh, actually, not. I think we've had rain uh, early this morning. I bet I had an inch of rain. Uh, towards noon, we got hit by rain again. Uh, they postponed the boat race from five to six, which was good because then I was able to get there. Uh, but looks like a beautiful sunset. Now this is the um, United Way cardboard boat race. Is that what who, who this? I I I'd have to go back to my videos <laughs> to find out what I'm actually doing there. <laughs> Just a bunch of people with in the river with cardboard boats. Anything that would float. Yeah. And some of them were actually submarines by the time they finished. Yeah. Nothing to salvage though, because all the the people out there with the little jet skis and stuff for security and. Safety towed all the ones that didn't quite make it back to safety. Uh, so we're not going to find them as a wreck on the lake then? No. No. And they're very explicit about if you're not keeping your boat, there's a big dumpster. And I meant to take a picture of the dumpster with all the <laughs> carcasses in it, but I did not. And some of the boats were pretty ornate with like dragon heads or something. They did not put those in the dumps. People took those yeah. with them. Yeah. Because I... I and I don't know how they're doing it, but I know in Niles years ago, they had the Niles River Fest, and they did one. And there used to be all sorts of different awards you could win, you know, most decorated, uh, the greatest sinking. <laughs> uh, so there's all sorts of recognition possible. But there were a couple that were like speed demons. I mean, whoever made their boat made them really, really good. Yeah. And the last five, they had uh, the top winners of all the heats and that came down to five fastest times then they had one final race with them to see who actually and the one that did the fastest heat was the also a winner but it was neck and neck towards the almost a photo finish so some of those boats are extremely well built some are just funnier than blazes Well, let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. We have the old diehards in the chat room again, Derek and Eric showing up. And we also had uh, Christopher as a, a new one. Uh, that was somebody who last week after the show had mentioned that uh, he was out of New York City, a longtime listener, uh, and he just rediscovered us moving to Discord. 
he says the last episode caught his ear where we were talking about the Mizuto's expedition. Mm-hmm. And it was at NAS, NAS, uh, which I think is a school's name, uh, field. Uh, oh, goodness, I'm going to slaughter this. Uh, but he was on the expedition team as a NAS school student. Oh. Yeah, and he says currently uh, he's involved with editing a documentary uh, and it'll be released in about three months. So he says if we have any questions, just give him a holler. So thank you, Chris, for letting us know about that. Sounds like an interview time. Yeah. Yeah, maybe as he gets a little closer, we can have him on and he can give a little plug. Well, as long as we can keep Craig online tonight, we'll be good. Yeah. Yeah, you never know, Craig. Well, this first article is a follow-up. It's nice to be able to come across something we had covered before. And if you remember, they were talking about that uh, wreck off of uh, New York, and they're going to do some oil recovery. There's a World War II-era shipwreck, the Coimbra, I think is how you pronounce that. At least that's how I'm going to say it. And they said the operations are uh, nearing completion over two months after they began on May 11th. And this is near Long Island, New York. Unified Command, consisting of the U.S. Coast Guard, New York State Department of Environmental Conservation, oversaw the response, supported by more than 100 government, industry, and environmental specialists. Bodolin Marine uh, had a 260-foot by 52-foot ultralight intervention vessel. The Sheila Bordelon assisted in the response recovery of 450,000 gallons of oil. Each agency involved in the planning, assessment, and recovery stages of the response played a critical role, says Captain Kevin Reed. Our federal, state, local, and commercial partners and response crews ensured a safe, efficient, productive operation. We applaud their diligence and tremendous work. DEC Commissioner Basil Segos said uh, DEC thanks the Coast Guard for collaborating with New York State through the large-scale oil recovery operation. 450,000 gallons removed from the vessel over the last three months were a hidden threat to the health of Long Island marine fishery and South Shore environment, and now potential impact has been abated. The Coimbra now uh, complements New York's growing network of artificial reefs, which serves as an economic driver for the region's diving and fishing industry. The wreck will remain in place 30 miles offshore of uh, Shinnecock, New York, as much of the 99% of the recoverable oil is removed and secured for disposal by Resolve Marine. The amount remaining in the vessel is very small, and any sheen poses minimal risk to the local environment and no risk to the shoreline, uh, said Steve Lehman, Senior Scientific Coordinator with NOAA. Any further potential environmental impact will be monitored by NOAA and the Coast Guard. Mariners are encouraged to call the National Response Center with any reports of pollution in the area. Uh, the Combra ship was owned by Great Britain, was sunk off the coast of Long Island during World War II by a German U-boat initial dive operations in May 19, uh, uh, May 2019, confirmed the tanker was leaking small amounts of oil. Did they say how deep? I know they said 30 miles offshore, but I, I didn't see how deep it was. And to me, it's amazing. You can ship, I sink a ship in a wartime environment, torpedo it, and that still contains, you know, half a million gal- gallons of oil. Yeah. Let me see. I'm going to do the great big book of everything and see if we can find out uh, how deep it is. 
And there's a website, The Fisherman, which actually has it listed. See, why would fishermen care? About what? <laughs> Shipwreck. <laughs> As if we didn't know. Uh, yeah, I was going to say, excuse me? <laughs> uh, yeah, they said if you're looking for a 500-pound thresher or 100-pound bluefin on jigging tackle or that 40-pound cod, then that's a shipwreck to go to. Wow. Uh, you would, let's see, do they show? So a little, it says it rests in three pieces, and that's even more amazing. They recover the oil if it's in three pieces. 30 miles southeast of the Morchus Inlet in 180 feet of water. That's got to be pretty tricky. Yeah, that's uh, that's certainly tech depth. I mean, it's, it's diveable. I think the the images we had seen before were done with an ROV. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, I know how you can tap, you know, you can actually put a, a tap on, secure it, and then open the valve to the tap. Quite often, they put two in, and I've seen it where they inject air, force it mm-hmm. through, so yep. it'll force the liquid out. So I don't know how they did it, but it would be quite interesting to see. I'm assuming the oil would float. As as the novice, it seems like, couldn't you just put like a big giant cone over the top and poke a hole and let it come on out? Yeah, You know, I really think you could, but I think containing it would be a little hard. Yeah, it's probably better to do it where you you have a positive connection. You can stop and start it. Yeah, especially if the weather kicked up. Yeah. So that's probably what they do. They probably have some sort of, uh, they penetrate the hull somehow and, and put some sort of inlet and outlet and, you know, feed water in one side and force the oil out the other. That'd be an interesting, have somebody who does that for a living let us know how that goes. And then this one, if you're traveling and you would like to avoid some fees, Delta's saying they're removing the $150 fee for sporting equipment as checked baggage. Delta Airlines says it's eliminating the $150 fee to check golf clubs, surfboards, bicycles, scuba gear, and other large sporting equipment starting today. Let's see what date was this. This was July 17th. Atlanta-based Delta's decision follows a move by made by competitor American Airlines to eliminate oversized bag fees for a variety of sports equipment and music equipment. And United Airlines last year eliminated its $150 to $200 service fees for checking a surfboard, wakeboard, or paddleboard. Southwest Airlines, the second largest carrier, already allows passengers to check golf bags, scuba equipment, and small bicycle boxes as baggage without charging a special fee for sports equipment. Uh, Southwest allows passengers to check two bags for free. It charges a $75 each way for larger bicycle surfboards and some other equipment. Now, Delta and United, and I haven't flown on them. I've been on flying Southwest pretty much exclusively for about the last four years. But do they charge baggage fees? I don't know. I'm guessing they do. When the when we had that downturn in the economy, I think pretty much every airline other than Southwest started charging those fees. Um, and that's what got me with Southwest. I mean, once you get spoiled not paying those fees, why would you want to? Well, I can't. I can. To me, how can you sh- want to take a surfboard and not think you're going to have to pay extra? 
Well, they're just going to throw it in the top. (laughs) I have not a clue. They're not doing anything special with it. Uh, A lot of fees in the airlines are just, they're trying, airlines just seem to be such a losing business to begin with. So they're looking at any way to charge you for something. And as long as the other guys are doing it and they can do it, then they'll just keep doing it. Um, Somewhere, let me see how much, this is probably going to be a scary number. So let's see. In 2018, guess how much U.S. airlines collected in baggage fees? A lot. (laughs) (laughs) It was $4.9 billion in fees just on baggage. So while it seems ridiculous, it's like once you've been feeding off that revenue, how do you give it up? And that was so many, so many now charge you if you want to select your seat, if you want an aisle, they charge you for a little bit of everything. Yeah. Anything they can get. Uh, I can't tell you the last time I had a meal on a plane, not that they were ever that good anyway. Uh, Well, I think you do transatlantic or something or trans Pacific. Oh yeah. Yeah. You're going to go short ones. I don't even think you get the coffee drink, you know, or the free peanuts. I don't know. I've done a lot from uh, Chicago to Kansas City, and they do that. And I feel sorry for the uh, the stewards and stewardess or airline attendants, whichever they're they're called nowadays, uh, because it's like as soon as that plane's up, they're running down the aisle because you, you're not in you're not up at that altitude where they can do it that long. So they've got to hop to it. Yeah. Yeah, and they show. Uh, the number one in a ranking at over a billion dollars last year was American, then United, Delta, Sprint, Frontier, JetBlue, Alaska, Allegiant, Hawaii, and Southwest was way at the bottom with with a paltry $49 million in baggage fees. Well, you definitely want to take into account how much weight you have in the hole, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah and I, I'm sure there's going to be some restrictions. So before you go and think you're not going to pay, and I think that's just an extra fee over the normal baggage fee. So if they're going to charge you for your first bag, then you're going to pay for that scuba gear. It's just they're not going to charge you crazy. Yeah. Uh, and, and I agree with you in one aspect that if it's something unusual, it has to be something. You can't slow them down a ton with it. Because I, I can remember coming back from Mexico and they would have, you'd bring drinks like you could get, you know, you buy, uh, you know, vanilla and the tequila and stuff down there. And it was always in this carrier that the uh, airline attendants would have like a special spot to go and put it. And it seemed like that's just a pain in the butt. (laughs) Let's see. What's the next one? The next one is National Geographic to drain the ocean on the Confederate submarine Hunley Recovery. Uh, the TV show is going to peel away 18 feet of the ocean to show you where it was. We know it hasn't been there for a while. National Geographic's television Drain the Ocean Shipwreck and Treasure series will feature the Charleston Civil War artifact on this next Monday's broadcast. Using computer-generated imagery, the show displays what the ocean floors would look like if they could be seen, according to the series website. The imagery imagery literally drains the water away from the front viewer's eyes. In this case, it means exposing the wrecked submarine on the seabed. The Hunley is a hand-cranked 40-foot-long craft that launched the world's first successful submarine attack by sinking 
the Union blockade ship, the Housatonic, on Sullivan Island, February 17, 1864, which was a few years before I was born. The Hunley and its crew of eight rammed a powered explosive into the Housatonic hull, detonated in a massive explosion. While the crew signaled they planned to return by reportedly flashing a blue lantern light to shore, the ship never reappeared. The vessel's human remains were found later recovered four miles offshore in 2000. The crew was buried in the Magnolia Cemetery in Charleston. Since recovery, the sub has been undergoing conservation work at Clemens University-run Warren Lash Conservation Center in North Charleston on the grounds of the formal Naval Base and Shipyard. The lab is open for tours on weekends. The show's production team shot footage recently at the center. The big mystery is why did it sink? The University Conservators, working to restore the doomed vessel, recently reported the roughly one-inch gap where the ballast tank pipe should have been mounted on the sidewall of the submarine. If the pipe broke off the night the Hunley historic mission, it would have contributed to the sinking of the vessel and the loss of her crew. The intake pipe was meant to fill the forward ballast tanks with water. Now mostly clean, the sub will sit in a conservation bath for nearly five years, preserve the metal, and ready the vessel for permanent public display someday. Um, they said check for your listings to find out when it's going to actually be on. Yeah, I, I, I'm thinking if it had a hole in it, that would kind of contribute to a sinking. Well, failure to maintain buoyancy. Yeah. Not to be the devil's advocate, but I'm just always curious. Who pays for this? And realistically, looking at the days and items, how much they've cost to preserve it, what's the return on the investment? And why would this be more important than spending that money on other items? I I think some of these stuff, they're just never as a return on investment. It's more out of interest and philanthropy, why anybody goes and chooses to do that. And I think the key was what you just said. Somebody else's foot in the bill? Yeah. Well, they, they can't do it for nothing. Oh, yeah. Because they, they got to eat. <laughs> well, you get volunteers, right? Not at the scale that this one's being done. <laughs> if it was volunteers, it'd be in my garage, and I'd be slapping some varnish on the side of it. And, and it'd probably look like a big rock with barnacles. So but this is one I would go and see. Uh, last time I was down in Charleston, I didn't go and see it just because there wasn't much to see. I think they seemed like every time I had been down there, there was, it was at some state of preservation where you couldn't really see anything. Yeah. I've been down there too. I like the one on display outside the museum. Yeah. And the museum's yeah, that, pretty nice to go through also. Yeah. I haven't been to the museum, but I know what you're talking about when we drove by at that time. And you can always go to Fort Sumter. Oh, that's a, that's a good trip. Yep. Or you go out to Sullivan's Island out to the old battery. I just like because you just it just if you like history, those sites just ooze it, uh, and from different time periods, you know anything from you know the early seventeen hundreds to today, it's all right there, all in the same spot. Yeah, my my father was actually stationed there, the late thirties, and some of the pictures it it looks totally different now than it did when he was actually stationed there. It was probably a little bit more active looking, wasn't it? That they had buildings. Yeah. <laughs> they had, they had, a little cleaner. And uh, yeah. yeah. They, they had buildings on top of stuff now that they've cleaned the 
you know, now in 50 years, the buildings they tore down so you can preserve it. They, everybody would think would be collectible, but, uh, yeah, I, I enjoyed visiting it. Always did like Charleston. Always liked Myrtle Beach better, but then again, yeah, Charleston's got a lot of history. See, I just need to have a job where I don't have to work. You know, where they just pay me, and then I could go down <laughs> there. It's, it's getting a little cold. Let's go find some some shark teeth. I've always liked Charleston because if you go down there and you look at some of the guys who are doing metal detecting and uh, dumpster diving, and when I let me rephrase that, um, the old outhouse diving. You can get some really nice artifacts because they've got a lot of history down there. Well, you've been following any of these groups that they had on Facebook where everybody was all convinced they were going to raid Area 51? Well, yeah, they want to have a flash mob. Yeah, yeah. that would not go over really good. No, I, I was thinking that was Darwin at work right there. Is, uh, you know, you got some old ammunition at a military base that you need to use up. That's the perfect opportunity is people raiding a military base. It would be, it'd be quite interesting to see, you know, what mm-hmm. excuse could they give, possibly give for the tragedy <laughs> that would ensue <laughs> them when they all freaking disappeared. That ray gun that they've had down here from that spaceship. Well, I was, I was thinking there's all sorts of experimental <laughs> weapons. Uh, you could, you know, that glue, that gooey, bean bag stuff you could be shooting at them you could have those uh chirpers and low frequency things that make people the sonic cannon yeah 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 they could they could have all that stuff out just line it up just be play with it yeah yeah i'll show you some of the stuff we do have i mean you just have a big sign you know by entering this area you have volunteered to be a (laughs) yeah uh you know just what you could do is have like a little roadblock up up the road and you just give everybody toe tags before they head on down They'll save, save sorting them out uh, later. Yeah, see, there's, there's, yeah, I'm sure we'll get some email on that. It was sort of funny about that because that was, the MC was, was rather funny and he was trying to get jokes from everything. And he also, all right, show me, a, give me a show of hands if all you guys are going to go out there to Storm Area 51. I want to see what you look like before you go and if you come <laughs> yeah. back. Yeah. And he, he well, made some millennial jokes. Uh, it was it was quite interesting, entertaining. Well, the, the thing is, is it is, it's all to do about nothing. Is it's a it's a concept. Somebody said, you know, if we all rushed it, we get in. Well, I think you could, you may be able to make it past. You know, letting them know in advance, you probably spoiled the element of surprise. Yeah, but you you can overrun a checkpoint for a time being, but. Uh, a, the media, the newspapers, and and people who are covering this are misinterpreting followers and likes on a page as a commitment to go. I didn't realize that if you liked a page, that was somehow a binding contract to carry out an act. Not to say that the NSA isn't collecting that about you, but mm-hmm. uh, but here here's an alternative plan. Uh, one that's being floated is uh, storm the Bermuda Triangle. And the catch line is it can't swallow us all. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Since the event was created on July 12th, it has massed over 40,000 people either interested or actually say they're going to descend upon the mysterious oceanic region where a number of aircrafts and ships disappeared uh, due to alleged paranormal 
reasons. An attempt to storm the massive body of water, the Atlantic Ocean has long been shrouded in mystery. The group says it hopes to find lost pilots in hidden islands in a mysterious triangle. Anthony Dominic Carnival, who created the event, says it isn't a joke. Carnival said that once the idea of storming a massive region reached 25,000 people, he decided to start a GoFundMe to raise money and to pay for a, a expansion on his house, I think is really what you're going to be giving to him. Uh, the event is scheduled for October 1st at 8 a.m. Says attendees are required to dress up as SpongeBob characters or pirates. And Carnival will provide boats and scuba gear. He, that, he is not. Who has scuba gear for 25,000 people? Well, I think it would bring your own, doesn't it? He says he will provide boats and scuba gear. And then when asked if the <laughs> event was serious, he said, absolutely. So is he a major stockholder in Aqualung? I'm, I don't understand how you're going to do it. He says, I'm contractually obligated to use the money only for the event. If I somehow can't, I have to give their money back. Let's see. You could name your, your porch Bermuda Triangle. Wouldn't that, like, you know, there's there's got to be some way. I don't said the event is supposed to take place September 20th at 3, 3 a.m. Oh, well, you got to sneak up on them. Uh, oh, that's, a, that's the base. <laughs> like, we all know that military bases go to sleep at night. Uh, yeah, no, no, they went back to the one talking about the military base. We'll just skip through that. But Okay, uh, I'm, I'm afraid to do this, but I think I'm going to click on the GoFundMe link. I like the Bud Light offers free beer to any alien that makes it out of Area 51. <laughs> oh, okay. So the so his fundraising goal is a total of $175,000. Without looking, how much do you think he's raised so far? Not a clue. 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> $20. Oh, and he has how many, how many people signed? How many people signed up for it? Uh, he was it twenty five thousand. If everybody uh, gave a buck, that that's a lot. Yeah, of money there. I, yeah, he he did, that, and that's probably what he was thinking. Uh, he he. It has the GoFundMe has been shared. That GoFundMe tracks uh, four hundred thirty six times, and uh, oh, his most recent update. Uh was an hour ago when it says we got contacted by an alcohol distributor who's really interested in the event. I contacted Florida, Miami County permit office, to start getting things moving. Please share this. We make the festival happen. Any money that's left over will go to cancer research and marine life preservation. And bail. Oh, I see what they're doing. <laughs> because the, you know, where the Bermuda triangle contacts Florida. That's where they're going. They're, it's a booze cruise. <laughs> That's what they're talking about. Yeah. He does have one person said they'll be there. Hey, they had three, t-shirts. Three, three people are donating. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's what he needs to do is design a t-shirt and doing stuff. I'm just not thinking that it, Anthony's really quite figured it out. Well, if you're just up like a pirate, all you got to do is have a patch over your eye. Yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking that profile picture he has in the GoFundMe isn't helping him anything either. Uh, his most recent donation, his biggest one, he doubled his donation one hour ago. Uh, somebody gave him 10 bucks. <laughs> wow. 
And the guy who gave him money said something in a foreign language I don't understand. Maybe we could get them to donate it to, I don't know, something like a scuba podcast show? Yeah. We'd cover it. Absolutely. I'd do it for one-tenth that cost. $17,000 I'd be willing to go down there and, and cover it. Let's see, October 1st. Is, what, is, that, is that really when they're going to do it? Huh. I'm still interested in the Area 51 thing. <laughs> I figured you would be. <laughs> well, do you see that bombshell revelation? Pentagon admits it investigates UFOs through secret initiative? Yeah, well, you'd expect them to. It's called the Blue Book. I was yeah. old anyway. Well, my theory on that one was that you needed a cover story to cover up everything that you were already doing. So it's a better oh, yeah. cover story than, than aliens. Yeah. And if you get people to doubt or question, so if you can never get more than 30, 40% to, to believe anything that they see or hear about, then you're pretty much golden. So. Besides, Uncle Sam wouldn't lie to us. No, let me no. screw. Let me let me rephrase that. They <laughs> yeah. wouldn't stretch the truth any, would they? Yeah. Or maybe disseminate yeah. a little I, bit I, of truth in the statements. I, I feel like we need to have some uh, some background music that we play underneath this segment. You know, maybe <laughs> uh, something from. Oh, gosh, my mem- the, I'm missing my memory again. What was what was that show that? Uh, I used to watch it all the time. Twilight Zone? No. More recent than that. Darn it. Chat room can save me. X-Files. That's it, Karen. Karen got oh, it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. X-Files. Yep. That's... <laughs> wow. I, I, I kind of uh, lose the momentum when it takes me a while to figure it out. Well, how about this for finding some shipwrecks? Medieval ships found the heart of Oslo. They said first came the award-winning opera house, then the tall, slender buildings of the modern business district known as Barcode. The entire neighborhood of swanky apartments followed with a new museum, center library under construction. The city's waterfront is changing fast, but just a few feet beneath it all, secrets of medieval Oslo are slowly being revealed. Six ships have been found in three months since archaeologists from the Norwegian Maritime Museum began a large-scale excavation project in April 2019, six medieval ships have been discovered, adding to more more than 30 shipwreck discoveries in the past 15 years. Project leader of name I will not pronounce called the discovery an archaeological fairy tale. Whammer told Afton Poston that it's rare for such large areas to be dug up and even rare to find ships and objects so well intact. Well, if you dig where something is, you're going to find it. Yeah. Yeah, and we've we've documented in the show that a lot of large cities on waterfronts have shipwrecks on them because they were great things to use. You know, either they were just parked and sank, or they're deliberately pulled up to the shore, uh, sank and used to help hold fill together, yeah. and then things eventually got built on them. So I don't know why. Everybody's trying to, oh, this is this couldn't happen. Why'd we find it? Because you dug and looked for it. You know, most developers now don't do that. I'm guessing that they were specifically tasked with that or there was an incentive if they did find anything. But if nobody's, like you, you've said, nobody's paying for it, nobody would have found it. Uh, 
like where we used to dive in Sheboygan, over the last 35 years, there used to be a bay there. When I first was there in the early, I mean, really early 70s, there were three ships over there off in the side. They'd been burned down to the waterline, and eventually they sunk. You go there now, that's dry land. So when they start building houses over there, and they went for the basement, they're going to find boats, and they're going to say, oh, my God, look at that. There's a boat there. Yeah, yeah. there's, there's stuff like that all over. Now, I've talked about you know, my grandfather who's in the marina business and shipyards and how many vessels and boats that they parked and just conveniently let sink and then they pile another one on top of it and let sink and they're all over. I mean, nobody hauled a, a boat out of the water and dragged it to the junkyard. Why spend yeah. that amount of money? You just, you just leave it there when nobody can see it above the surface. It's gone and taken care of. Out of sight, out of mind. Yep. So they're saying it's better understanding of medieval Oslo. Ships along the building remains, moorings, and thousands of smaller objects tell a story of Oslo's rapid development in the 16th, 17th century until the Great Fire of 1624. Despite the fire and subsequent changes, the city be, being well documented, there are few historic sources or maps that describe the details of the port's rapid development prior to the fire. Findings in Germany, England, and the Netherlands indicate much of Norwegian timber was traded at the time, but the latest finding puts Oslo itself well and truly on the medieval map. The findings represent new knowledge of the city's seafront, an important transition period for Oslo. Old harbors and areas have long since been destroyed in many European cities, but this isn't the case in Oslo. The buildings and functions destroyed in the 1624 fire were relocated to a new town behind Akershus Castle, leaving the area relatively untouched for almost 400 years. Some of the old harbor was filled in and eventually built on with railroad and highway, but large parts of the area are now, only now being disturbed. In the early 1980s, city bosses drew up the Forge City Plan to regenerate the rundown waterfront district. The plans were approved in 2003. Seven million square feet area is in the process of being transformed into parkland and waterfront promenade modern business district residential apartments, new cultural hub for the city. The Opera House opened in 2008. The new Munich Museum and Public Library is set to open in 2020. A 2010 railroad, or I said railroad, a 2010 road tunnel facilitated much of development and removed 80% of the traffic from the area. No photos. I mean, that's what's disappointing. Other than the front one. That looks like a dock, doesn't it? Yeah. I think that's just a pier that's kind of collapsing, and I can't believe that's the vessel. I mean, doesn't it look a little too... No, it looks more like a pier because if you look down the left-hand side, you can see the piling goes down. Yeah, th that, those are too straight. I mean, I guess you could, between those pilings, have something. But at first, you know, you, you see wood, and you're going, ah, that is it, but not. You know, if anything, it might be in that coffer dam, or that's a barge there, I think. Okay, well, I'm, hopefully they, you know, if they're going to spend all that time documenting it, they'll share some of it. We get to take a peek. And then this is an article that you had uh, turned me on to from Undercurrent. Um, and this is divers killed by fish bombs. Two Chinese tourist divers and a local, is that Bajo diver, were believed killed by fish bombs while diving the water off the island resort. Semiporna nil near. I mean, I didn't go in there. 
Malaysia on July 5th. According to witnesses, there were several fishing boats operated by Moken Sea Gypsies near where the three divers were killed during the incident. And there's more about it in their August issue. And they show a photo of, uh, so imagine a beer bottle. And it looks like they've kind of sealed the top. Yeah, so I'm wondering, is this one of those? So so that's a fuse then. Looks like a fuse coming out of the top of okay. it. So I was wondering if they're doing that or if they're doing the mercury switch type detonators. But a fuse makes sense. Well, that's cheaper too. <laughs> yeah. No, you don't have to be as sophisticated. No batteries or electronics involved. Well, you know, people say, well, they can't do that. Well, they used to do it here. And yeah. that goes back to the ones I found under that one sunken boat. Remember? Yeah. Out in Singer Lake, I found what I found not to be pipe bombs. And it's like they had the mercury switches. Fortunately, they were, uh, the batteries were corroded. And uh, the cops at the time, it's like, eh, no big deal. They're dynam- you know, fishing for issues and dynamite and whatever. Yeah. Well, if that yeah. had been new, yeah. it would have been a lot of fun for me. <laughs> What people don't realize is until recently, and I'm going to say maybe the 70s, environmental research would use bombs to fish. They would they would throw detonations in the water, and they would use it to do surveys, count what floated up. Yeah. Uh, my dad, who worked for the nuclear industry, uh, they, they did it a little bit more civilized way. They had an electric probe. They'd go out in the middle of a, a containment pond or something and put the little probe in the water, hit a button, and they, you know they'd see what would float up, count them. Well, when they did the FSAR at uh, Cook Plant in Palisades, for example, uh, U of M was instrumental in providing netting samples of all the different varieties of fish life and bottom. Yep. And that was prior to the building, so they could establish what was there, how it may or may not be adversely affected. And then they tracked it for 15 years afterward to prove it ain't doing what we thought it would do in an adverse manner. In fact, the fish thrived because they liked the warmer water in that vicinity. Except in the winter, of course, and it did freeze. But Yeah. So, you know, tragic that somebody passed away, and hopefully they can come up with a better way of fishing some sort of enforcement uh, to keep this from happening again. Well, like they said, sea gypsies doing what yeah. they need to do to make a living. and They're floating on boats. They're throwing that in. And yeah. if you don't run them off or do something, they'll, they'll keep doing it. Quick and easy. And you hope that they were unaware there were divers in the vicinity. Yeah. I mean, I'm... You were hoping it's not malicious. Yeah. Well, and then the divers, I mean, the question, not that it was their fault, but did they have uh, dive flags or anything? Or, or and and generally, when you're doing, diving off a boat, you don't carry one with you. The boat has it. No. Right. Well, then how about this next diver? Scuba diver comes across a grenade in the river. Young diver went looking for buried Trevor and the uh, treasure in the Chattahoochee River and to a surprise came across a hand grenade and caught it on video. A recording for his YouTube channel, Tyler Blockman, uh, says the first glance he thought it was a fish. When he got closer, the hand grenade submerged in the sand. Blockman believes that someone might have thrown in a training grenade in the river and exploded out the sides to keep the shell intact. He says he's been diving for treasure 
for about six months, and this far has been the most interesting thing he's found. I've never found anything like it at all. really blew my mind because a lot of times you come out here, you find crazy things, but something like this, this is a weapon that, you know, crazy to find something like this in the river. Uh, he documents his find in his YouTube page called Tyler's Mark. He said at this point, the channel's to find fascinating things and cleaning up the river, but he also returned the treasure when he finds it back to its owner. He was not at all hesitant about picking this thing up either. I watched the video. Well, I like the part about if it's a training grenade. You're familiar with training grenades? No, I, I, there's, it's like a cork in the bottom and it doesn't have explosive. There's a primer okay. enough that'll blow the cork out and go, you know, bang or pop. Okay. So when it says and exploded out the sides, keeping the shell intact, I am sorry, but the shell is what doesn't <laughs> the bottom. Right. Comes out. So I, I thought that for like training, you may have a grenade just for weight. You would throw one just to see. You know, just so that people could get used to throwing them before that's you actually... Get, that's when you get your practice runs that don't have explosive. Right. And that's what I thought this would have been more than a training one. But I guess that makes sense that they would have one that would actually detonate. But you would do it in a way that you weren't going to uh, do the shrapnel. Yeah. yeah. But that that's, a, that's one of those classic uh, grenades uh, with all the parts. You know, the ones you see in the movies nowadays are just more... What, your baseball versus the pineapple. Yep. So, but yeah, he didn't seem to be too concerned about coming across it. And then how about this? On uh, Mel Fisher's wreck, they found a 2.2 carat emerald. Uh, and this is on the old shipwreck Atosha that was uh, discovered by Mel Fisher in 1985. The ship once held treasures that were worth more than $450 million. That would have felt... So that's a good day. I mean, good eye. She was able to find it. I would have fit right inside of my glove, you know, under <laughs> the little seal. What what emerald? It, don't they do strip searches there when you come out? I don't know. I oh, what did I swallow? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, body, I, body I'd, be, I'd be worth to go through a little bit of searching through poop for <laughs> for two carat emerald <laughs> for a few weeks. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh. So, so right, right now the NSA and the Mel Fisher are all got you on their watch list. <laughs> Never been down there. But here, here's the consolation prize: you could always go to a toxic Russian lake. Yes. This this last one in our series of articles for this week has the Russia Siberia, or what they're calling their Maldives. Residents in the city don't need to fly off a tropical location to get selfies taken with a pristine turquoise water uh now did you go through and take a look at some of the pictures yes some of those are pretty good it is amazing uh (laughs) what what, uh contaminants will do yes it evaporates clothing it looks like yes or burns it off your body or something yeah see i only saw the one photo which is the one that they show in the cover so if you go and we'll paste that in there uh but I'm sure there's uh, some of them were of guys too, so equal opportunity. I'm sorry, were there? Actually, were there was, was there anything else in the photo? Uh, <laughs> well, they had weddings. It, it, it had yeah. a lot of a lot of photo ops. I like yeah. the last part where the local company that's polluting it says it doesn't bother anybody. <laughs> it's, it's not hazardous. What is all of this problem? 
Yeah, Dmitry Shikov, a Russian environmentalist, warned that the water in the lake can cause allergic reactions or even chemical burns if ingested or touched. This water is saturated with heavy metals and harmful substances. Siberian generation generating company said Friday it has deployed guards to keep trespassers at bay, but it states the lake poses no environmental danger. Yeah, a little fly ash, a little lead, you know. Well, just I don't drink if, the water. I know from my dad doing uh, background tests, said that the most contaminated natural sites he ever found were fly ash from uh, burning coal. Well, the funny part was our background, Cook, for example, uh, if you established the same background in Washington, D.C., around some of the monuments and the buildings, the, uh-huh. the background radiation from the granite is higher yes. than our limit at the plant. Yeah. So legally, I couldn't go there and work because I've been exposed to radiation and it wasn't you know, mapped out. It wasn't tagged as such. And I wasn't keeping my dose. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's all relative to where you're at and what the concentrations. But granted, I, isn't that some of the early form of uh, mining for radioactive material they used to process it from granite? I'm not really sure, but I do know that, uh, like, the, um, the mantles used to have for Coleman lanterns. Oh, yes. Run, run your little detector over there, and it's going to go crazy on you. Yeah, my dad There's- had some... Some old uh, Geiger counters used to play around with, and that was the thing we used to do. Get we would run them by that to get them to chirp. Yep. And back otherwise, was, it was boring. You just run around; it didn't do anything. When I was a kid, you used to get uh, you know the green stamps for the gas at the gas stations, and you could get uh-huh. dishes and cups and stuff. And we got a lot of the nice ceramic ones that were orange. And it turns out years later, people realized like run a Geiger counter across it, and they were hotter than blazes. They weren't going to contaminate because they were encapsulated in the in the mm-hmm. flatware. But it's like, okay, maybe we should recall that stuff. Yeah, well, in Chicago, you had the radium dial factories. What, not Chicago. You had them right down here, on, uh, down there where the box factory is. Yeah. They, they used to have them in there. Oh, I didn't know they did that. Oh, yeah, they, that was a hazardous zone. When they cleaned it up. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, one. aircraft instruments were in there. Ah, that would make sense. Yeah, because uh, they said that the ladies who used to do all the painting the numbers on, they would they would lick the paintbrushes. Well, to, to get the get tip. A, get a, to get the tip all pointed out. Yeah. And yeah, yeah, there's a little bit of negligence going on. You, you maybe needed to. But they didn't know at the time. Uh, maybe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Let yeah. me rephrase that. I was hoping they wouldn't know that was a... No. Yeah, I, I I think that the the population in general didn't realize it. and But uh, I think there has been some cases of where they they knew it wasn't good for them. But, I mean, that's... I mean, there's a lot of things that people knew weren't good for them, but you'd... Well, our, our term of... Ex, yeah. But our, <laughs> our term of... Ex, our exposure limits were... Now, if you do something on Monday and it doesn't kill you by Friday, then it's probably not that bad for you. So Yeah. Uh, and, and stretch that out to five, six years, even then, that would be hard to notice. But uh, we've, we've gotten much better at it, yeah. hopefully, for now. Well, that does it for Scuba News. In the chat room, was, there's 
kind of hard to concentrate on the show. They had some better conversations and photos going on in there. Uh, I missed that. What's going on there? Let me. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I see Karen's online now. Hey, you got Karen and Eric and Chris, and they're all going on and have all sorts of stuff. Oh, yeah, I see it now. Yeah. Sometimes the sidebar conversations that are, yeah. are quite interesting that if we have a round robin, it would be good. Yeah. We, then again, we who, have to, who would talk the loudest is who's here. Yeah. And we may have to resurrect that. I've, I've thought about even doing that in uh, you know, some sort of location. So it's not out of the question. Kind of bring back some of the old stuff. But if you're enjoying the show, we'd certainly appreciate your support. Um, visit our website, www.scubobsessed.com. Click on over the Patreon page. And uh, any little bit helps. You can follow us on Twitter at scubobsessed on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash scubobsessed. And there's usually two or three other ways that I always forget and I'll remember later. But... Uh, Let's see, did you, did you get any chance to go out and do any diving this last week? Uh, well, we did get out there in Havana. Yeah. The same as you did. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's, you know, mark it on the calendar, you know, one, <laughs> one, one, one mark. Uh, I actually did get out and do a, a scuba dive this week. It, it was on Sunday. Uh, Captain John took us out. Uh, also, Kurt came along with us, and I hadn't. Hadn't seen, hadn't been diving with Kurt in a long time. And it was nice to see him out. Uh, so we all, we went out to the Havana, got to see the beginning of the crib. So, but John, and John's, uh, I call it newish boat. He's got a, what do you call that a Boston whaler style? Uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Probably about 20 feet hard hull. Uh, but he's, he, in the, he got it this winter took uh, part of the winter and completely stripped it down to nothing and rebuilt it up. And it is a nice boat. That's a, I consider that to be one of the ideal. Oh yeah. Near coast dive boat. If you're going less than five miles out, uh, it's just per- perfect. Nice. The ladder was nice for getting up and back. Yeah. Cause we had four divers. Uh, we could have each probably done two tanks and there's plenty of room. I didn't feel crowded. No, it was nice. So you could probably do six divers in the boat and all go down the one tank or, yep. you, know, you know, a little bit more with, with more, but uh beautiful day going out there. Nice sunny day. Waves were less than a foot and almost nearly flat. Until we started doing some scanning and we started coming back in looking for that wreck out there by the piers mm-hmm. when the, the wave action did increase and it was 90 degrees to the boat. So we couldn't get a good scan where the darn. Yeah, but Jim was out there also now. Yep, Jim. Jim brought his boat and he had uh, his his boat crew with him. Uh, but we got to Havana. It was as you know, if you got a side scan, it's pretty easy. And then hopefully there'll be some form of marking on that here in the not too distant future. Yeah, Jim did find a nice target. He's looking to go back and uh, see. And in fact, I thought he might have been going out tonight. Or yeah, there today. was some talk he was gonna he was gonna come out on Thursday. Yep. Uh, and I know the surface water temperature is 76. 76. Great. And then what do we have in the bottom? I'd say it was about 56, 54. 54. Yep. Yeah. So it's a little chilly. You knew you knew about it. I dove in the the holy wetsuit. 
uh, which is a little bit holier than I remember it being before. Uh, and my boots, I've uh, my boots are completely destroyed. So if I go diving again, I'm going to have to decide, do a, if I'm going to do a wetsuit, I'm going to have to get boots or do I do the dry suit? The problem with this time of year with it being so hot is I about can't get in the water before I'm too hot to be functional. Uh, I threw the wetsuit on this time, dumped them, jumped in the water to cool off. And then I got the rest of my gear on and that was just about right. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised that uh, I remembered everything. <laughs> everything kind of went together and it worked. Mm -hmm. uh, visibility down there was about six feet, I would say. If you were lucky. I think, I think the guy who was last following the line that the two guys went first yeah. got the advantage of everything. Oh, yeah, that was like, that was. you know, that was, that was great. <laughs> you, you had, you had circled it around objects. I didn't even have to look for. I went, 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 found the crib. Uh, I even had it turned around some knots and I get out there and yeah, you, you and Kurt had blazed a nice trail for me. It was like, uh, almost like being chauffeured on a, on a wreck dive. I was looking around wondering, where is, where are you at? And then I look up and then I see this guy just big smile on his face, regulator almost falling out of his mouth, just yeah. following the line around. Yeah, I didn't have to do anything. I just kind of, uh, you know, you, you get good at that. You, know, you stay in somebody's blind spot. I mean, you're kind of like a stalker, underwater stalker. <laughs> but that was, it was a nice dive. It was, it was uh, refreshing, comfortable. Um, it had been rough the day before. So I think we were just starting to see some of the particulate settle, which uh, contributed to visibility. Uh, but the wind was coming out of the east, which usually makes for uh, fairly decent viz. And we did see some interesting aerial items, not UFOs, but. Oh, yeah, there we saw some A-10s, a pair of A-10s, which I've seen quite a bit in the last uh, month. And then there was five uh, helicopters. Six, six, six Blackhawks. Six Blackhawks. Wow. Yeah. And I've, I've had other people at work talk about, you know, did you, you see the helicopters? And some people were worried about it. Yeah, I think they were looking for UFOs and stuff. Because that is part of the Michigan Triangle we're at. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. you know, that, that whole subject leads into our uh, safety item for the So as most people know that we are, we're generally talking about how to keep ourselves safe and how it's the broken chain that creates a problem. And what can you do to help minimize that kind of issue developing into something bad that gets you killed? So we were... Physically out there, mentally thinking, what are we going to be doing and how we're going to be doing it to make sure we have a successful and safe dive for everybody. And personally, I suited up in my neoprene suit, got my gear all set up, verified I had my air turned on, verified my regulator function, made sure I was hooked up to my buoyancy compensator with no leaks, inflated my BC, put the mask on, rolled out of the boat, and immediately realized that the neoprene suit I had was a dry suit and a zipper was not zipped. And it's like, damn. So I came back up. Obviously, I had my BC inflated, plenty of buoyancy. Went around to the ladder. Where grinning people were then more than happy to help me try to get my butt into the boat. Because then when you start getting out, all the water goes down to your legs. So you look like... Uh, 
your arms are really big if you're eating spinach, you know, Popeye. Well, that's what your legs look like. And then once you get on the boat, you have to have somebody peel that off because the suction (laughs) with that water in there, you have to break the suction so you can get your feet out. Bottom line, of course, is if we had not done the good pre-checks, had not put the air into BC, we had not verified that we had air, those are the scenarios that could lead to somebody drowning. What if I'd have gone in and my air was turned off? What if I'd have gone in and my BC was not inflated or not hooked up? All of those items were done correctly. So the one error that I did make was just that. It was an error, but it was not fatal and correctable. So it's easy, even when you're trying to do things right, you sometimes screw it up. But if yeah. you do all the other items right, it's an inconvenience. It's not a, fa- you know, you're not going to be a fatality. Yeah, it's those compound errors. So if you can do whatever you can to reduce it, so when you do make a mistake, uh, there's less of an impact. Yeah. Yeah, because you've got the, it's kind of, it's a neoprene dry suit. So it's yeah. it's easy for somebody to, who doesn't realize it's a dry suit, just to think it's a wetsuit. And and because part of it is almost all the diving I've done this year, matter of fact, all the diving has been with people with dry suits. So we um, we already know everybody checks the zipper for everybody else. And since I wasn't checking anybody's zipper and they were not wearing dry suits, it just, nobody thought about it. And we normally check each other's gear. Yeah. And we did for the air, and we did for the other items. I just missed that dry suit. Yeah. So, lessons learned. Yeah. Let's see. Do we have anything that we need to promote? Anything coming oh, up? Nothing major. I know we got the club picnic coming up, but that's – and if anybody's interested in attending with us, give us a call. We might be able to arrange a chicken or steak for you. That's going to be the 17th of August. Yeah, and then we've oh, got the ecology, the ecology dive. Yeah, that's going to be September the 21st, and you are invited to that. Uh, yeah. And we do have prizes, and more information will be coming out on that pretty soon. Yeah, I need, Glad I need to have you come. get the images set up for you so we can get those flyers going. Yep, I was going to send that there. to you tomorrow, matter of fact. Yeah. And, and for the uh, ecology dive, we need shore support. I mean, divers are great, but for about everybody in the water, it's nice to have one person on the, the shore helping out. It's not nice. It's a, it's a necessity. Divers yeah. cannot do that by themselves without shore support because you're not going to drag up a tire with your scuba gear on and no. put it on shore when you can bring it to a dock so you're mm-hmm. supporting in the water. They pick it up, put it on a wheelbarrow, and take it up. Tremendous mm-hmm. asset is, is people helping you on shore. Can't do it without them. And if it's been thrown in the water, it's been pulled out. There's everything. Concrete blocks, engines, motors, electric motors. Yeah, some people are actually using those big ones for anchors. Yeah, (laughs) with somebody. Yeah, because I'll I'll occasionally, when I find something, I'll ask my uh, industrial friends in the city and go, who do you know who would have done something like that? And they go, oh, yeah, that would have been. And they usually have an idea what shop it was, because I guess it's that was a, a thing. Some people would this, you know, why why spend money when you can do something that doesn't cost money? Yeah. So yeah, all that stuff. We it's nice to be able to pick it up and 
and and clear some of that out. And it's actually uh, good for us because we, even though scrap is very, very, it's like $65, $70 a ton now, we still make money, a little bit of money, by putting all that up there, all that rusty yeah. water heaters and engine blocks and engine parts yep. mounts up. So we can make a little money for the club that way. Yeah. Well, I think we're kind of coming to the end of it all. The so, end is near? Is that what you're saying? In a way. Okay. Uh, let me see. I had the, uh, uh, here's the show notes. So are you ready for that time of the show? Yes. Well, as we're getting to this uh, warm time of the year, uh, I was talking to a Canadian friend of mine, and I was saying, uh, did you have a good summer? And he said, yes, indeed. We had a great picnic that afternoon. That sounds like Michigan. Yeah. Well, that was a that was a warm up. So, so here's another one. Our first day at a dive resort, my wife and I decided to hit the beach. When I went back to our room to grab something to drink, one of the hotel maids was making our bed. I grabbed my cooler and I was on my way to out. When I thought to ask, "Can we drink on the beach?" Sure, she said, "But I'll have to finish the rest of the rooms beforehand." Okay, so here, we'll we'll do one more because I, I don't think that one quite had it in there. Little Timmy was in the garden filling a hole when his neighbor peered over the fence. Interested in what the cheeky-faced youngster was up to, he politely asked, What you doing, Tim? My goldfish died, replied the boy tearfully without looking up, and I just buried him. The neighbor was concerned. That's an awfully big hole for the goldfish, isn't it? Timmy patted down the last heap of earth, then said, Yeah, that's because he's inside your cat. (laughs) (laughs) It's hard to put those live cats in a burlap bag. (laughs) It's got to be persistent. Yeah, big time. (laughs) We're we're really heavy-duty gloves. Gloves, yeah. So until next time, go out there and get wet. And stay safe. Yeah, we should should almost do a disclaimer. No cats were harmed. Yeah, that's true. Okay, Craig. They said don't cut the last part out.